0: I call that the itty bitty shitty committee, (laughs) which is that inner voice in your head. That's just like, it is telling you every single thing that might possibly go wrong and how you're definitely going to screw it up. And you're going to just fold under pressure and you're going to embarrass your trainer and you know, everything.
1: them in on the rail at a jog please on the rail at a jog all righty everybody we are uh back with another on the rail podcast episode and very very excited to bring you this guest today um this is meredith brisson uh, she is somebody that I actually connected with about this time last year. It was uh, in the middle of July-ish, I think, in 2021. She is a therapist and specializes in teaching equestrians mindset issues, improvements, that type of thing. And I was struggling with my own issues in the show pen last year. And really, really, really struggling with it. And I'm not somebody that just wants to rest on my own laurels and kind of wallow in self pity. And I wanted help with it, so I just did a quick Google search, kind of reviewed some people. It seems like the hunter jumper dressage world has a lot—not a lot, but more of these people out there than what exists in our stock horse industry. But I reached out to her. We connected. Kind of told her what I was struggling with, and she definitely thought she could help me. We. I had a few phone calls and stuff that really proved to be beneficial for me. And I know a lot of us struggle with the mindset and mentality thing when it comes to performing on the show pen and stress and pressure and all of that. So that's kind of the reasoning we wanted to bring her on today. So Meredith, I will turn it over to you. And if you want to just introduce a little bit about yourself.
0: Yeah. Hi, thank you. I'm so glad to be on here with you today. And to be really transparent, I'm feeling a little nervous. nervous-sided, which is the word that my daughter <laughs> and I have coined for, you know, that like butterflies when you're a little bit nervous and you're a little bit excited and you can't really tell the difference. Um, so, you know, we all go through it. That's great. But I'm really psyched to be here. And um, thanks for the introduction. Yeah, I am um, that mindset and courage coach is something that uh, I hope we can all learn more about. Cause I know I didn't have one when I was heavy in the competition world. So I wish I knew a little bit more about it also.
1: Right. So what's your background when it comes to, uh, the therapy side as well as the horse side too?
0: Yeah, I'll give you a little bit of my history. Um, so I started riding when I was eight years old. Um, my family moved a lot. We moved about every three years when I was growing up until high school And so I was pretty lucky when I was eight, we moved to Connecticut and my mom said, you know, let's try to find something here that you couldn't do at the last place we lived. And there were lots of horse farms around me. So I decided to try riding and it was like, you know, like the books. I just absolutely, from the moment I started, um, fell in love with it and, It really became an important part of my identity, an important part of kind of anchoring me through all the moves that I did in my growing up. I always had riding to take with me. Um, And I did um, the sport of three-day eventing for through my 20s. Um, I had an amazing chestnut thoroughbred mare who was just the bravest thing you've ever seen um, and was really lucky to get to compete her um, through the upper levels in eventing. And then I um, I say I moved to the dark side and I started doing dressage and mm-hmm. um, did uh, worked with a lot of young horses and got to do quite a bit of competition in the dressage world. Um, and then I started to really experience some of the classic symptoms of burnout, which for me meant you know, I was doing something that I loved um, with people that I loved. I was with, you know, a trainer that I adored. I was riding fabulous horses. I was living on a gorgeous farm. You know, all the pieces were there um, that should have led to what you would think would be satisfaction. And the joy was just not present anymore. So I also was looking to kind of fill in some other parts of my life that, you know, I think those of us who have been in the equestrian industry and in that competition world for a long time know that it is a 24-7, all-encompassing way of life. So I actually took a big chunk of time off from riding and from the horse world. And I went back to school and I got my master's in clinical social work. And I met my husband and I got married and Um, had uh, my daughter, and uh, I opened up just a traditional practice working with kids and teenagers and adults and families, you name it. I was working with them. Um, And it probably won't surprise many people to know that uh, just organically, a lot of what I was working with was um, centered around anxiety. So I naturally became um, really invested in learning about you know different ways of managing anxiety, really where anxiety comes from, and you know what it looks like in different contexts. And um, and then I decided, you know, let me put my passions together and started, um, you know, thinking about working exclusively with equestrian riders. I was so aware that so many of the folks that I was working around in the equestrian industry whether they were professionals or amateurs were putting so much time and effort and money <laughs> into the sport and a lot of them were not enjoying it the way you know either they were scared they were fearful or they were you know like spending so much time preparing th- for that competition and were spending the the entire competition in the porta potty <laughs> where you know <laughs> so so you know i wanted to be um resource so that we could actually access more joy in this sport that people really dedicate so much to. So that's when I created um, my practice and I now work as a sports psychology coach for equestrians. And I also call myself a mindset and courage coach because that's really the parts that I, you know, focus the most on.
1: Absolutely. That's the best introduction because I think the majority of us, if not all of us, can relate to exactly what you just said. Um, anxiety in the show pen is something that is so common and we all think we're the worst ones at it and we're the only ones that have it. But, you know, we talk to people, you know, and everybody's faces anxiety. I think right now there's a particular with the economy and stress, it's just a big time for burnout and it's really, really common. So this is a perfect time to have you on. So with that said, what do you think is unique to the mental aspect of equestrian competitions?
0: Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, because certainly I think on, on one hand, equestrian just horse people in general, I think are a unique breed, um, in that, you know, there's this real passion and dedication, um, that, I think is unique to equestrian sports because there's another being involved. And so, you know, a lot of the time when I talk to people and really ask what it is that brings them back to, you know, what gets you driving down the driveway even when you are experiencing, you know, the stress, the pressure, the anxiety you've had, you know, we all know horse the horse life is not a straight line trajectory of success. Mm -hmm. And it throws at you any number of, you know, somersaults and (laughs) twists and turns. Um, Just when you think you've got it all figured out, (laughs) you don't anymore. (laughs) Um, And and yet, you know, there is this level of passion and dedication to equestrians that I think non-horse people often find puzzling, you know, like, well, if it's so, if it makes you so nervous or if it's, you know, if you're experiencing this distress, why do you keep doing it? Just go find something else to do. But more often than not, that's not even on the table for the people that that I work with. And, you know, I work with people that have some pretty major obstacles to, to work through. So that's one piece. And I think along those same lines, we're also dealing with the unpredictability of having another being (laughs) that we're working with. So it's not like I always laugh and say, the golfer doesn't have to pull their golf club out of the bag and say, so, you know, how are you feeling today? Did you, you know, get out in the paddock and run around enough? And like, is the weather (laughs) okay for you? It's, there's a level of, um, you know, you can control what you are doing as the rider, but there's always going to be a level of unpredictability in what's happening with those four legs underneath you. Um, so there, you know, it's complex and layered. And, um, again, like that word unpredictable comes up time and time again, because that's, that's hard to manage. Um, but it's also what makes us love it. So the thing that's hard is also the thing that makes us really love it. I think.
1: Yes. I think you're Probably spot on. And that's an interesting point and just harkens back to why all of us horse people are, have a little bit of a crazy in us, but we all identify with that. So (laughs) it's a community of craziness. (laughs) So what would you say is, or are the biggest self-sabotaging behaviors that you run across with your typical writer and really how common is it to have issues, whether it's just writing, but more so with showing?
0: Yeah. I mean, first, I want to start just by saying how common it is when I hold a workshop and I get a bunch of people in the room, and oftentimes there's professionals and amateurs and young people and older people all together, and people start to share what their experiences have been. And almost every time, without fail, people come up to me after and say, Oh my gosh, I never would have thought that so and so struggled with, you know, self-esteem issues or worrying, of, you know, comparison issues or anxiety in general about, you know, the what ifs. So there's something really universal about it. it's just a part of the game, really. But in terms of some of the common misconceptions I think I see come across my my practice time and time again, the first one is I would say that our goal is to be totally free of anxiety and nerves when we go into the show ring. That like if you're experiencing that amped up, I mean you could list any any number of names to the feeling that you get that that means there's something wrong or that there's a problem. Because really that feeling in you is an indicator that you're doing something important and that you give meaning to. And we want to work with that. If you were going into a show feeling cool as a cucumber that I would almost call that complacent, you know, like, well, you know, do you really care about this? And, um, so obviously there's a spectrum And there are levels of anxiety and negative self-talk that really can get in the way of your performance. Um, But I always make the point that we're not looking to get rid of it altogether um, because it's actually what gets you on target and like focused in a good way. And then, you know, on top of that, anxiety is there for a reason. That's your brain's way of keeping you safe. And so, you know, when there's that little bit of fear, that it's keeping you really aware of what you need to pay attention to. Um, So again, no anxiety often can lead to more problems than having that healthy dose of anxiety in there. Does that make sense?
1: It does to me.
2: It's definitely an interesting way to look at it because I always just want to not be nervous because I feel like it just you know, messes up my chances of going in and putting down, you know, a good pattern or just a great class on the rail. So I like the, the mental shift there of realizing that I don't need to get rid of it completely, but just switch it around to see how it would affect the way I ride.
0: Yeah. You know, and sometimes, um, Liz, it's like the, it's the, the language we use around it and the meaning we give to it because really it's a feeling often in our body that we're responding to. So it might be a little bit of a tightness in your chest or your heart might be racing or those butterflies in your stomach. Maybe your thoughts are a little bit faster in your head. And if we attribute that to, oh my gosh, this is me, you know, here we go. I'm getting that anxiety and I know that anxiety leads to poor performance. So I better not have this anxiety. You can feel even just talking about it, the pressure and the energy gets very intense. But if we can say kind of like when I came on here this morning, oh, I, or this afternoon, what time is it? (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'm feeling a little bit amped up right now. And that means, you know, of course I'm feeling amped up. I'm about to go in and do something important. And this is a really normal feeling to have. And, you know, you sort of just greet it as, yep, there you are. Here we are. We're at a competition. This is the feeling I'm going to expect to to meet at the at the gate, basically. And again, I don't want to minimize that there's levels of this that we're talking about clearly. Um, and so there's certain times when, yes, it's like we need to figure out some tools to manage it and get it into a really good uh, level of, I, I use, usually use zero to 10 as the the guide. And they say your peak performance is actually when you're at like a four or a five. So we think it needs to be a one But peak performance is a four or a five. Now, if you're at an eight, that's gonna start to take you out of your thinking brain and it's gonna be really hard to remember all the steps that you need to do. But it's always surprising to people. Oh, wow, four or five, that's more than you would think.
1: I do think relating to the, the thinking brain thing is one of the things I have struggled with is just how fast things happen in the show pen that doesn't happen when you're in the practice pen. You know, it's like you, you know what you're doing and then you get in the show pen and it seems like a million things go on at once and it's hard to process all of those things all at once. So what do you say to that? Like, what's the, what's actually going on there and what would we do to address that maybe?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And really what I hear you saying is like, there's a way that our brain can quickly feel overwhelmed when we're in Mm -hmm. a pressure situation um, that maybe you don't experience in a different context. And, you know, I always say that the antidote to overwhelm is focus. And so again, the more we can, like most of us have a bit of a crystal ball that we can look into before we go into a pressure situation, unless this is your first time ever being in the show pen or in the show ring. Um, but once you've done it a couple of times, we can kind of say, yeah, you know what, this tends to be the pattern That I fall into when I go under pressure. And the, the goal then is to preemptively sort of create how you're going to meet that in, in the show pen. So for instance, um, if we know that like the outside, what's happening on the outside of the ring tends to get into your thought process or, you know, what's happening internally. Like you get distracted by the, the internal feelings or thoughts that you're creating. What we want to do is come in knowing that focus is going to be your friend during this time. And to be really clear what the two, maybe three, no more than three things are that you're going to really hook your brain onto in there so that you're not trying in the moment to think about oh my gosh what's my priority right now what you know what should i put hook my brain on usually ahead of time you can say if i can really focus on these three things it's going to make my performance you know that much better and we also need to remember that hopefully we can rely on our training for a certain amount of that process to happen also. So we often think, I have to think about every single step of the process in the show ring, but if we've done a you know, pretty good training on the way there, there's usually only a small percentage of what you're doing in there that you have to give that extra amount of focus to. And the other stuff hopefully is pretty automatic because we've been doing it so much
1: at home. Why do you say, two, maybe three things Hmm. when it feels like there's probably 50 things going on. Right,
0: right. (laughs) Yeah, because believe it or not, we like to think that we're really good multitaskers and that we're capable of multitasking. But if you look at the research, um, our brain can actually truly only focus on one thing at a time. So it ends up just moving really quickly from one thing to the next and one thing to the next and one thing to the next. So if you come in um, and tell your brain that it needs to focus on 15 things, and when I say focus, I mean like really giving it that um, intense, intentional thought. Um, right there, it just goes <laughs> You know, like <laughs> that's where that overwhelm hits. And when we get overwhelmed, that's the when your brain goes to the blank slate or, you know, it's like, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I cannot figure out like my brain and my body are not connecting right now. So again, it goes back to trusting that some of the stuff you have to do, you're, you're going to intuitively, you know, have in there. And then two or three things that you can, you know, really give some focused attention to is about what you're brain can handle in that situation. It doesn't mean the rest of the things are not important. It just means that you're going to give that focused attention to the two or three things that you know um,
1: are going to need that the most in order to up your performance. Can those two or three things, I assume those can shift over time as something becomes more intuitive than you would maybe move your goalposts, you know, few steps down the road to focus on the next two or three steps. Yeah.
0: You know, I have a couple of ways that we work on that and forgive me because I, I work with a lot of dressage writers. So a lot of my, my lingo is going to be sort of in that domain, but I have an exercise that I do with a lot of writers where we just take three columns on a piece of paper And one column is your got it's one column is your struggles. And the one column is your, we call it your point grabbers. Um, So the got it's are the things that you're going to be doing in the show ring or the show pen that like, you know, they're flowing more often than not. You can do it without having to like really break down the steps. You know, like once you learn how to drive, you don't have to think about now move my foot over to the gas and then you know, it, it just kind of flows. So the gaudits are those reliable parts of your pattern. The struggles are the parts that even at home, they're not confirmed yet. And so unfortunately, there's no magic wand that if it's not confirmed at home, we're not going to expect that it's all of a sudden going to come together and happen reliably. <laughs> at a show. <laughs> so, you know, that's sort of just the reality check, right? Like, okay, if there's going to be an issue, it's probably going to be in the struggle column. And then you've got the point grabber column. That's actually the most important one. Cause this is the one where it's like, these are the the movements or the parts of your pattern that in maybe you're working on them a lot in your lessons or in your training. And if you give those parts that little bit of extra focused attention, it's gonna up the quality and up the um, the chances that it's gonna go well. So it's not that you don't have it or don't know how to do it, it just takes that little bit of like, ooh, I need a little bit, I need to push my hands a little bit more forward or I need to make sure that my position is, I need to focus on my position in this particular piece. So those, those movements and those elements in the point grabber column are the one that you give the most energy to when you go in the show ring, because those are the ones that actually have the most impact on your score. Generally, they're the ones that you're going to like have the most influence on the struggles. You're going to do the best you can, you know, you're going to go in there, you're going to do what you can yeah and again you're either going to get it or it's like yep we're still working on that it's a work in progress and the um the got it's are the ones that you're going to really assume are going to be more in that automatic place in your brain so what it does is it really hones in on what are the parts of my pattern that I can really give that little extra bit of focus and attention to and it it helps to
1: pull that apart to me there's something really powerful about Labeling your struggles as struggles, and then not expecting them to either go bad or good in the show pen. It's like we know what our struggles are, but then we're just like, oh, we go in and show and hope that it goes well. And you're kind of expecting to fail. But if you label them as a struggle and just be like, you know, it is what it is, and we're working on it, that seems to me to just remove some of the pressure off of that, you know, instantly. Anyway, and it's something so simple, but it's just a reframe of the, the mental side of it. Totally. Seems really powerful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's like, it's a work in progress. You're not saying it's not important. You're not saying that you're not going to try hard in those places, but it's like, it's just the reality. These are the parts that we're still trying to wrap our head around, <laughs> uh, whether it's the ride or the horse or the rider and the horse together. And th- and just I'll just add that part of the reason I love doing this exercise and it's really helpful to do it, you know, throughout your show season is that the goal is obviously that the struggles move into the point grabber column and the point grabbers move into the got it's column eventually. So it really helps you see progress and also know like when it's time to move up a level. If you have no struggles and a whole lot of got it's, (laughs) you know, gosh, you're confirmed. You know, it is time to think about, let's move on to the next, to the next level. And if you have mostly struggles and maybe one or two got it and a whole lot of point grabbers, then you know usually it's like, yep, this is the beginning of the season, this is the beginning of the season or I've just moved up to this level and of course this is where we're at. I'm not confirmed yet. So it just normalizes the progression that we don't all come in, you know fully confirmed at a level and the, that's why we keep training. That's why you know that's why we do the the hours at home is to see those,
1: those movements move. Can emotion ever be a good thing for a writer? Ooh. And I know you've talked about, we should recognize the anxiety and consider it normal and still perform, but there, is there real, any real actual benefit to having these emotions? Well, so
0: emotion is a pretty broad term, right? And I would say, absolutely emotion can be a benefit and a good thing for a rider. Um, because frankly, we are emotional beings and to think that we are going to go in and be robotic, um, honestly takes the dynamics out of why we do this. Right. So, um, I think you know there's no such thing as a bad emotion and emotions are really data that are just giving us information um and so if you can look at it that way as you know what am i noticing is coming up for me and then letting that be feedback for how we can deepen our process and really under understand ourselves better that in itself is is a huge benefit to writers and when i say that emotions are really, they start with a thought. So we have a circumstance. I'm going into the show ring and you know, I really want to do well. <laughs> that might be the circumstance going into the show ring. Isn't what is creating anxiety. It's your thoughts about going into the show ring that are creating the anxiety. Um, the, the circumstance is neutral. So what the emotion is telling you is like for the first question would be well what's going through your head what are those what thoughts are happening for you and then those thoughts are things that we can work with and that we can influence and um kind of make work for us or against us so yes that the first piece is emotion is data and and that's going to help us get you to your best place uh mentally and emotionally going into the ring also you know i think If we take away all uncomfortable emotion, it's basically you're numbing yourself. So there's like, you could see how that would be a good thing. Okay. Can I just be in like this neutral middle? But I have to say that when you take away the possibility of feeling the hard emotions, it also takes away your ability to experience the more positive emotions So we don't want to go through life and showing numb and just mm, that um, it, it works both ways. And I think we come from a culture right now that is pretty, that can like err on the side of being pretty toxically positive, where we Mm -hmm. feel like no matter what you need to be Happy, grateful, and find the silver lining in every situation. And frankly, there are a lot of situations that you are going to be in every day um, at a a show that really warrant some deep and intense emotions. So if you go into a championship show and don't perform the way you want to, I don't think there's anything wrong. (laughs) With you feeling disappointed and feeling pretty in the dumps for a little while, that seems like a very reasonable response. Now, do we want you to live there forever um, and sort of get stuck in that emotion? No. But I think there is a really important piece of just allowing the authentic part of who we are as human beings, which is a fully feeling person, be present, even at shows, even in the show ring and learning ways of managing it so that, you know, nobody wants to be in tears when you're in the show ring. (laughs) That's not the place. Mm -hmm. But if you, the more you push emotion away, the bigger it comes back. So, um, a lot of the work is being able to just notice and sort of identify what's happening internally and then feel empowered to do to make a decision what do i want to do with this and where do i want to go next when it comes to my emotions and then go there so um i don't i hope that answers your question but you know i think that that is one again one of those misconceptions that comes in is like ooh we've got to stop feeling <laughs> -hmm. No way. Like we are, it just brings more. When you get through those hard times and those hard moments, it makes the good times even better and more worth it. And so holding on to that duality is really important.
1: It's interesting to me that you talk about that disappointment is okay. Because, like you said, the whole culture of being super positive and, you know, you have to be a good loser, so to speak, in anything other than having a smile on your face and being happy about it seems like you're having sour grapes. So is there anything beyond just acknowledging your disappointment and moving on from it there? Or do you set like you give yourself 24 hours to kind of be miserable about it and then move on? Or what do you kind of say to that? Yeah. I mean,
0: I usually say that whatever, you know, it's context dependent, obviously. So we're not going to put a definitive timeline on it, but you know, that you really allow yourself to feel and clearly just like with kids, there are appropriate and inappropriate ways, right? Like you don't need to throw a fit in the barn aisle, but permission to be permission to feel. And so whether that's, I'm going to take 10 minutes and I'm going to go in my truck and I'm going to just, you know, have a little (laughs) meltdown. I'm going to cry to my spouse or, you know, whoever it is. I'm going to let this out. I'm not going to try to pretend like it's not happening, but then I'm going to figure out, okay. And now what where do i what do i want to do with this and where do i go next so it's not that we don't learn from you know and kind of say what did i learn from that um struggle that i just experienced that's sort of the next step and then you move there you consciously move there so it's it's really that permission to feel and figure out what
1: works best for you for how you want to make that happen what does people that tell you And not, I'm not begrudging trainers by any means, but it seems like we hear a lot of times (laughs) they'll say, just relax, go out and do it. Or your parents will say, just go have fun. But that never really seems to be helpful. (laughs) Yes. But it's true. So, right, right. What about that?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that again, it's another really common thing that I hear. Um especially when I'll say to a client, you know, how would you like to feel? That's a question I ask a lot. When you go into that show ring, let's talk about how you want to feel so that we can like have what we're going towards. And more often than not, I hear the word relaxed. <laughs> I want to feel relaxed and I want to feel calm. So, Absolutely, like, totally get it. That is what I think we think we want to feel. Um, but as we've already discussed, if you if you look at any top rider, look at the riders in the Olympics, any of the riders in any discipline, I don't think what they are feeling when they go into their peak performance is relaxed. Um, and so I often reframe that to say, I want to feel focused, right? Like I want to feel, if you think about what it really means to be in the zone, it means that you are like in that state of flow where your mind is immersed in the process of what you're doing and everything else seems to kind of fade away. Um, That is a, a, it's a state of focus that you're, that you're in. So um, it's also relax and calm and have fun <laughs> are, like are really um, inaction. You know, it's like a state of not being. And that's really hard for our brain to understand. It's like, I want you to go out there and not be. Does that make sense? Like there's, like how do i do that especially when you're feeling anxious for somebody to say like oh just relax it's like well yeah i know that's where i want to be if i could do that i would right but tell me what i need to do here so i really encourage people trainers supports people to kind of move away from that that word relax and think about what is it what is the feeling i'm going for and what is the focus that i'm I'm going to wrap my head around. So go in there and I want you to, um, you know, feel determined. Now determined is something that your brain can latch onto and say, Oh, what, what would that look like? What would that feel like? What thoughts need to go through my head to, to have that sense of determination? And that even that, like, just go out there and have fun. That's pretty, um, you know, like what does that really look and feel like for a, a rider going into the show ring? That it's it's very um abstract. So to really think about words and feelings and directives that your brain has something to hook and latch onto, because that is going to help let all the extraneous stuff fall to the wayside and give your brain that like really tunnel vision focus of what you're going for there's nothing worse than feeling anxious and having somebody say, just relax.
2: I literally was sitting here when you were asking like, what would you want to feel going into the Chopin, And I was like, I have all of the, the feelings I don't want, but I've never actually thought about what I want to feel when I'm going in there. So it was, that was, I was sitting here like contemplating and I was like, huh, I've never actually thought about what I want to feel when I'm in there. I just know I don't want to feel so anxious. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And you
0: know, you know, what's so interesting and it sounds so simple when we actually get it out there. But first of all, if you tell yourself, I don't want to feel anxious, if you focus on the, what you're moving away from your brain doesn't actually translate the, I don't want and when you say the word anxious what you think and feel and picture is anxiety or the feelings of anxiety so there's this whole dynamic piece of language that's important to to think about so the the little trick and the little tool that i tell everybody is when you get into, especially if you're in the what ifs in your head, like, what if I go in there and I just, you know, lose it? Or what if I go in there and I completely forget what I'm supposed to be doing? You're again, you're the words and the focus is on the thing that you don't want to have happen. So the tool that I give, I call it the million dollar question and, um, it works in anything in life. It's not just for writing, But what we say, there's this little formula and you say, what do I need to do to make blank happen? And in the blank, you fill in what you want to have happen. So it's the positive meaning, the thing you're going towards. So if you're worried, um, like, what if my horse spooks at the end gate, something like that. That's the thought, what spook at the end gate, you're picturing that time and time again. But if we can flip that to say, what do I need to do to keep my horse's attention on me? What that does is, first of all, it's giving you the image of what you're going for. And then what happens is your brain starts to come up with the solutions. You know, okay, so, and hopefully you have, again, two or three things. I'm going to make sure that I, you know, put my leg on and ask them to go forward, that I flex a little to the inside. That, I, whatever it is for you and your horse. So instead of just thinking about the what if, um, it's giving you, it's giving your brain the focus of the things that you can do to put yourself in the best situation possible with what you have to control. So that's, there's so much to it. I mean, I love this work because. There's so much <laughs> that we can do. Little shifts can make huge changes in the way um, you experience riding under pressure.
1: What would you say to a writer that struggles with performance anxiety or feels a lot of pressure before they even get to the show pen? I mean, I remember as a kid, And the week leading up to a show, I was always excited to go. But as the days went on and maybe two, three days out, it started to feel like a little bit of nerves, but it was excitement. And then the day before, the night before, it was like full-fledged nerves. Like, I don't want to do this. I'm so nervous. I'm getting sick. Uh, So what's happening in our brains there? And what are some troubleshooting strategies to go about those?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, again, normalizing it. And and just saying, yep, okay, I know that co- leading up to a a competition, or I, I'm gonna I'm gonna feel those nerves. But I think the other thing is anxiety automatically either pulls us into the future or pulls us back into the past. So you're either thinking about what you're imagining might happen, or you're thinking about a past experience and you know uh, kind of ruminating on what happened. And the more we can get our focus on the present moment, and it's this moment that we can control right now, the more we can mediate between (laughs) our anxiety and what we need to be doing. So all comes back to, again, thinking about, first of all, what are the thoughts that are going through my head that are creating this anxiety? So there's, all different. There's performance pressure. There's that comparison pressure. There's the anticipatory anxiety. So you get anxious about your anxiety. What <laughs> <But> if <laughs> yes. I start to feel anxious, and then I feel anxious about possibly being anxious? Um, uh-huh. You know, there's there's so many different levels. And if we can try to pull ourselves back into what can I do right now in this moment to set myself up in the best way possible for whether it's the next day, the next week. That's why a lot of people make lists, they, you know, kind of create their plan or, you know, I I really encourage people to come up with a mental warm-up routine so that you're thinking about how do I want to feel? What do I need to do to to create that feeling in terms of the process and the icing on the cake is since we've said this a couple of times that it's really your thoughts that create the feelings and so if you can spend some time again saying my crystal ball tells me that when i get to the to the show i'm probably going to feel this this and this and which is going to make me behave in this way um and ahead of time come up with some really anchoring thoughts that put you in a different state then you have that. It's like your security blanket, you know, like, oh, I know that thought, that automatic thought's going to come in. Like, oh my gosh, who do I think I am? I shouldn't be here. I'm not ready yet. I'm going to look like a fool. All of those things. But if you have already created something to talk about, I call that the itty bitty shitty committee, (laughs) which is (laughs) that inner voice in your head. That's just like, It is telling you every single thing that might possibly go wrong and how you're definitely going to screw it up and you're going to just fold under pressure and you're going to embarrass your trainer and you know, everything, the itty bitty shitty committee comes just in time, right before you go in and put yourself out there and are vulnerable and maybe even step up into like out of your comfort zone and, and into a new level. And we need to meet the itty-bitty shitty committee with, rather than saying, I have to push it away, we need to meet it with um, some comebacks, basically, and have those ready ahead of time so that you can say, uh, actually, I've done a lot of preparation for this. Um, I've done this before. I'm going to do it again. Um, I'm going to do my best out there. And... You know any number of things, but that preparation ahead of time is so important. And it, I recommend that it happens well before the the show or the competition. Not just you know like any time is good. I'd rather have have people prepare the night before than not at all. Um, but all of this work. Our brain goes to what it knows best and oftentimes what it knows best is that negative thought um, because it's trying to keep you safe and keep you from pushing out of your comfort zone. So it takes a lot of effort to shift those thoughts and shift those beliefs. And it's not like a light switch that we can just turn off and turn on. It's something that we have to notice. Ooh, I'm going down that path that's leading me to that feeling that I know doesn't make me ride well. Um, So let me practice this other path. As often as I can before I'm in the hot seat, before I've reached that level of um, pressure that it's hard to come back from. Um, And that's just, it's giving you that leg up to be able to make shifts and changes before it's too late,
1: basically. How long in advance does it typically take somebody to make progress with kind of rewiring their brain's (laughs) thoughts and whatever? Like, how far, if you have, say, a world show and We'll just throw it out in December I'm sure it's different for everybody of course but what's your ideal scenario?
0: yeah that's a good question it's it's totally different for everybody so I you know I wouldn't say there's a prescribed amount of time because frankly these beliefs that we're working through and working with often have been developing for our entire life so you know it starts with Things that we interpreted in our childhood, and that teacher in second grade who told you, you know, who made you feel ashamed for the grade you got. And it's layers and layers of evidence that your brain has built to kind of build these beliefs as truth. So I would say, on some level, we have a lot of techniques that we can put into play that I would call kind of band aid techniques, like. You can start doing this work a couple weeks before a show, and we're going to be able to scratch the surface and give you a slightly different experience. But in order to really make it, make these organic shifts so that you are actually walking through life and showing and pressure situations differently in a way that feels like your new truth, that's, that takes time. My, the program that I offer is five months long and five months is the time that I really feel like people can either get to a different place or really have an understanding of the process to be able to continue the work and deepen it on their own. So, you know, that can give you a little gauge for like, you know, five, six months, a year. <laughs> um, that, it, this, is, this is life work and it really, what I love about it is it is not just limited to your riding. Once you start to do this work and understand the power of shifting your focus in order to build new beliefs that are going to work for you, um, it's life-changing in every domain of your life, which is, you know, obviously so empowering to all of us.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's an overnight fix And we definitely don't get into these thought processes overnight. What would you say if somebody is just extremely nervous, I call it on game day morning or whatever, like actual day of showing what's a few things or one thing people can do to kind of ease your nerves day of? Yeah, yeah.
0: First of all, I really encourage people to think about the environment that is going to be the most conducive to finding that sense of focus in your process. So when I say that, what I mean is when it gets down to, you know, the hour before it's time to, to get on and get going, do you need to have people around you? Are you somebody that likes to have that support with you? Or are you somebody that needs to have a little bit more of a bubble <laughs> to be, you know, a little bit more quiet space? What are the parts of getting ready that, I mean, there are obviously parts that you have to do, but there are also parts that maybe you don't have to do, but are are things that you enjoy doing and that sort of connect you to your horse and to the process. Know what it is that gets you feeling grounded and connected when it comes to the lead up. Um so that's one thing and again that's something that you can think about ahead of time and communicating that with your support system whether it's your trainer, your parents, your spouse, your barn friends, you know, being really clear this is what I need in that hour or couple hours of time prior to showtime and talking about it ahead of time is important. And then I really encourage people to have It can be a simple mental warm-up routine that you do prior to getting on. And for people that are just dipping their toe into this for the first time, what that can consist of is sitting down and saying... For this class that I'm going into right now, these are my two or three goals that I'm really going to be committed to. And this goes back to those focus points. Those goals are probably going to be connected to the focus points. So the two or three things that if I can, when I come out of the ring, if I feel like I've really given those what they deserve, I'm going to feel successful regardless of what the outcome is, the placing, the score these are the things that are important for me to feel like I've focused on and accomplished in there. So that takes the, the huge kind of overwhelming amount of, this is what I need to think about and gives, puts it into a nice container for you. And then again, I, I encourage people to really think about how do I want to feel in the ring? How do I want to show up in there? and. I actually have a sheet of paper at my desk that has all different emotions and feelings on it because we tend to rely on the big ones. You know, as we've talked about anxious, calm, sad, mad. But there is so much out there that when you can like find that. Uh, we call it emotional granularity. It's where you like take an emotion and 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 turn it into like almost a creative process. And if you can say, "I want to go in there and feel fully present and engaged with my horse," that is going to give you something to chew on in there. Versus, as we've talked about, I want to go in and be relaxed. Um, so really being clear, what would feel good? How do I want to show up in the ring today? And letting your brain really um, focus on that word and that feeling. And last but not least, I would say um, that wonderful like thing called breathing <laughs> that we tend to forget, <laughs> that we forget. to do. <laughs> right? So um, the type of breathing that I uh, really recommend people do, it's called 478 breathing. I always joke with people because I think most of us know, you know, like on some level, oh yeah, I have to breathe, take deep breaths, take deep breaths. Well, if you just sit there and take deep breaths, what actually often ends up happening is you hyperventilate because you're literally just, you know, it's like almost this out of control breathing and your brain goes, that's too much. So to have, um, a way, of breathing that is actually going to communicate a sense of safety to your brain is really beneficial. Um, so, four, seven, eight breathing, it's as simple as breathing in through your nose for four counts, holding your breath for about seven, and then breathing out through your mouth, ideally for eight. Um, it's a pattern of breathing that emphasizes the out-breath and the out-breath is what communicates calm and safety to our brain. So if you do two or three rounds of four, seven, eight breathing, even throughout your day, it can be a morning uh, ritual that you can get into so that it's something that's really um, familiar to you. Um, But that pattern of breathing will ground you very, very quickly. And I'll just add, I always tell people, don't get too hooked on the exact numbers. Like, oh my gosh, did Meredith say it was five, seven, nine, or four, three, you know, just remember the in breath is the shortest hold for a little bit. And the out breath is the longest. And ideally it's about your in breath is about half as long as your out breath. So,
1: Hmm.
0: you know, that's, we always want to give the uh, like the cheat sheet, right because when you're in it, and you're like, ah, i kind of I'm supposed to breathe, but I can't remember the exact numbers. Just focus on the out breath um, and you'll be good to go. So find times to remember to do a couple rounds of that, and it's you'll notice a huge difference in your nervous system.
2: I kind of have an off the wall type of question mm. in regards to how the amateurs mostly the amateurs I'm not sure about like in the dressage world but in our neck of the woods in showing and riding we have a lot of amateurs that like to drink the day of the show do you feel like drinking would have a more of a I don't want to say like negative impact but do you think it would increase the anxieties that they're trying to get rid of versus helping them get rid of the anxiety.
0: So my most simple and direct answer to that would be, does drinking numb the anxiety? Yes, it does. But does it also take your brain out of a place of being able to be on and focused and present? With your horse and with the process that you need to be uh, doing, yes, it does. (laughs) So, if the goal is to lessen anxiety, you know, you will accomplish that. Is it going to increase and benefit your performance? I would dare to say no. It is not. In fact, it will. It has the potential to probably impair your performance because our, you know, no matter what discipline you are doing. Your connection and presence in the moment with your horse and and navigating what is happening in this moment with me or next to me, you know, regardless depending on what you're doing, and being able to respond to that quickly is really the key to success. And sometimes, you know, we know that sometimes the best performance looks like nothing is happening out there, but mm. there is actually uh, that beautiful symmetry happening Mm. between horse and rider. And if you're numbing yourself, you're numbing your ability to be present in the moment also. Um, so it like on the surface, of course, it, the anxiety, it gets lessened, it gets numbed, but, um, I don't think it's a coping skill that, uh, in the end really benefits.
1: Definitely. I have a couple questions unrelated to Chopin specifically, but before we move on from that, Liz, did you have any other questions about the Chopin?
2: Uh, no, no, this was definitely very insightful. I personally needed all of this.
1: I think there's a lot of us that <laughs> can. All righty. So outside of the Chopin, but more of a broad subject, is there any tips you can give us on how to know if you are paired with the right horse or the right trainer? or whether it may be time to move on or change from. Oh, yes. Oh, yes.
0: (laughs) That's a big one. And, you know, I'd say, you know, the horse and the trainer, we could kind of put into two different, you know, we could do a whole podcast on each, either one of those, (laughs) of course. Um, If we look at the horse piece, first of all, most often uh, what I'm assessing from my perspective, you know, I'm not the person, the client's trainer. I'm often not even seeing them in person with their horse. I have clients that are all over the country and all over the world that I'm working with. But really it comes down to, if we go back to, first of all, safety is number one. Safety net. So um, (laughs) even though a (laughs) lot of my work is about (laughs) helping people to be able to push out of their comfort zone and to, you know, work through anxiety, there's a piece of this that we do an inherently risky sport. And... None of this is to say that we do not want to get rid of your the internal voice that's there to keep you safe that says, you know, I don't think this is a good situation for me. I'm not comfortable being on this horse because it's displaying behaviors that I'm not feeling capable of handling. So we want to make sure that Oftentimes, we have a horse that might be at a different level than we're at, and that's not a bad thing. We just want to make sure that we have the resources to be able to make it work and that you're setting yourself up for success. Um, so that's obviously along like the safety lines. There's also going to be horses that can really trigger our internal belief systems of like, I'm not good enough. <laughs> I'm, I don't have what it takes. That's a little bit more dynamic to work through because if we think about our belief system as something that basically your brain is looking to confirm that negative belief as much as possible. So if you're thinking, you know, I'm not good enough, just as a very basic example, and you're on a horse that is really challenging your every move, every time your brain is basically scanning your ride for any moment where you are not succeeding or where you are not getting the answer that you want and then it latches onto it and it says see, I told you you stink you know like you you do not have what it takes and it gives those moments a lot of energy where and what we're looking to do is to also notice the other moments that are probably also happening that you know four out of five times you actually get a good response. It's that fifth time that something else happens. But if you're on a horse that, that it feels like, again, the joy is drained out of the process because you're constantly being triggered into a place of negativity, you know, that's something that we take into consideration. I, I always say, you have a choice what you want to put your energy into. And that's not to say that, that you can't work through a dynamic like that with a horse But you do have a choice if that is where you want to put your time and energy. Mm -hmm. And there's no right or wrong answer there. And there's not a, you know, this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. It's really about saying, what's going to work for me? And I'm willing to put the work into it. Again, I get riders, they're so committed. They will work their tail off to make a relationship with a horse work. But at some point we have to zoom out and say, and what could also be true? Or what could also be possible if we change this dynamic? So that's the horse piece, and there's lots of layers to it. The trainer piece, it's act, you know, it's similar in terms of we we all have different frameworks that we come into um, being in a trainer-student relationship. That comes from our history with our parents, our history with our teachers, anybody that's in sort of a power position. So we come with a lot of narratives already around what it means to be in a teacher-student relationship. And that's why there's a style piece that you just have to be aware of. The piece that's important to me is that, that's most important to me, is that um, when we're working with somebody that's dealing with anxiety um, or fear, that there's a good match there in terms of how it's communicated, um sort of the conversations that are happening between the trainer and the student, and then a real understanding of what the plan forward is. And it has to be a conversation. It can't the worst thing you can do is push yourself too far, too fast out of your comfort zone when you're dealing with a fear and that doesn't mean you avoid the thing that you're fearful of or anxious about but it's a dance and um we often expect our trainers to also have these honorary degrees in psychology <laughs> where like you know they they our trainers are there to give you the expertise on on riding and horses and there's an aspect of this work that is so mental and psychological And some people are in touch with that because maybe they've had to be, (laughs) they've experienced it themselves. And some, some trainers are fabulous trainers, but, you know, just don't, you know, have the understanding of how to work with somebody that's in a real place of fear. And that's an important conversation, just like the horse conversation of, you know, this isn't going to be easy. And it's never easy. Working through hard things is not easy, but you have a choice into what works for you and what you want to put your energy and time into. Those are some of the hardest conversations I think that we have to have. And the hardest kind of sitting with it and saying what's right for me in this moment is it's an important piece of the work.
1: Awesome. Well, I feel this has been extraordinarily helpful and insightful and it all seems so simple but until we can hear it from an expert it you know doesn't really process to our brains as well. So uh Liz did you have any final questions for Meredith before we kind of wrap things up today? I think I am good for
2: the moment. It was very like Jenna said insightful and mm-hmm. just you always have to hear it from you know somebody else before you're going to implement it and no matter how many times you sit there and get aggravated with yourself, you're not gonna, you're not gonna try to change anything. You're just gonna try to suffocate it. So it was definitely very helpful for me. I personally have taken a year off of showing. So I just told Jenna earlier today I had my hunt seat gelding up for sale because I the thought of me going back into a show pen was so overwhelming, and I got like I just get anxious thinking about it. But I made the decision earlier this week that I was keeping him, And we're going to try to show again, if I can get myself to do it.
0: (laughs) Good for you. Now you have some new, new tools to play with. (laughs)
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) That's great. Yes.
2: This came at the perfect time, like perfect. So yes, I'm super excited to try to implement some of these things.
0: Awesome. Awesome. You just keep thinking, what are, what are the thoughts that are coming up for me? And know that you have control over those.
2: <laughs> exactly. It's scary to think that I have control over that, you know? Absolutely. It's it's a lot of personal responsibility. Mm-hmm.
0: Can I just say one one more quick thing before we finish that really has, that that's connected to that? And I would say it's like one of the most important pieces. I can't believe I haven't brought it up until now. But Liz, like even given your situation. When your current state, when it comes to thinking about showing, is we could imagine it's up those beliefs of like, I don't have what it takes with this horse. You know, um, I can't make it happen. I'm not good enough. Pretty far on one end of the spectrum, we could say they're pretty negative beliefs, right? And I think the most important thing for people to realize is that our next step is not to go from that to, I'm the top of the world, I can do anything and I'm the best rider out there. Like we think that that's where we have to go next is to insert that really positive thought and that really positive belief. If you try to insert that thought into your brain right now, your brain is gonna go, whatever, (laughs) like, that's ridiculous <laughs> right like it's it's not true and mm-hmm. it feels like a costume that you're putting on and you're like i think i'm supposed to think this really uber positive thought because that's what we do right and what it ends up doing is it just it's like that that thought just slips right away and you go right back into the old pattern again because it's it's too far from where you currently rest so the first step is to just think what would 5% more confidence look like, sound like, Mm. and feel like? Taking those really small baby steps so that if you think a thought, if you create a thought that's just 5% different, and it might even be neutral. We usually go for the neutral thought first of like, well, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to ride. It's not, you know, It's not going to be horrible and it's not going to be great. I'm just going to go in there and ride, you know? So like something really mundane, that is the next step. And it's something that like your brain can say, well, you can do that. You know, like maybe you won't make a total fool out of yourself. You can go in there and just ride, go through the motions. The most important next step is that it has to feel believable to you. And you go for that one next and go for that 5% or 10% difference. Then after you do that, and that feels like, okay, now this is my new way of being. Then you go for five or 10% more with maybe the ultimate goal being that eventually you get to a place of saying, you know what? I think I can go into that show ring and rock it. And, you know, like, unless something really major comes up, I really feel like we're going to go and do awesome and i'm a great rider and i have a great relationship with this horse and i know my stuff like you can get there but we you don't need to get there as your first step from the place you're in right now um so i would say you know regardless of the context and who we're dealing with that's always what we start with is like let's just look at the next step and and go there cuz that's going to feel real and it's going to be sustainable, and it's going to keep going. Versus something else that's going to feel like, oh my gosh, I can try that on for five minutes, but then psh, it's gone. So I hope that's helpful.
1: Definitely, yeah, super, yeah, powerful. Uh, I think, and I do fitness and nutrition coaching for equestrians, and that's exactly what I teach: is don't try and be perfect. Let's just focus on the next step. But it never. Has really occurred to me, at least before working with you, about how to do that with my own riding and working with horses and to not go from zero to perfect overnight. And anything less than that is a failure. So,
0: <laughs> right. Or, and actually, the parallel to the physical fitness piece of like, you wouldn't go from lifting 10 pounds to lifting right. 110 <laughs> pounds and think that that was going to work right. for your body. Right. But we think that our brain is going to work differently. Like, nope, you got to do this incrementally and build up because your brain is, it's like the thought process is a mm-hmm. muscle basically that you're building. So it's, it's really helpful to have somebody in the fitness industry because it's like, oh yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> we wouldn't do that to our body. <laughs> yeah, There's a lot of parallels there for sure. Yeah, so, yeah. all righty, Well, we will get this wrapped up today. Since we have taken up enough of your time, we really thank you for being on, but please do tell us about your mental half halt program um how that works and then where everybody can find you at.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So the program I offer, it's called the Mental Half Halt Program. Like I said, it's a it's a five month program um, where we really dive into all the layers of this. Um, and uh, I work with folks who are again dealing with um maybe they're they've had a fall and they're working through some fear issues um it can be performance anxiety or it can just be you know like i really want to work on how to ride to my best potential and have the most joy in this process so it doesn't have to <laughs> be a crisis that brings you to coming and doing the program and the best way to get started and just like reach out and see if it's a it's a good fit is to go to my website which is www.merridithbrison.com And on there, you can sign up for what I call an introductory session. It's a free 45 minute phone call where we can just talk about, you know, what's going on, what's coming up for you and how we might work together um, and then go from there. So you can put yourself right on the schedule um, from my website.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Meredith, for being on. I know this is going to be very valuable to all of our listeners and we may have to get you back on for a round two sometime or three or four when... You know, this could be an endless amount of topics that we could go down the rabbit (laughs) hole with. So thank you for your time today. Absolutely. All right, that'll be your class. Bring them in and line them up.